0: Welcome to We The Podcast. This week on We The Podcast, we're talking about the economics of incarceration. Today, 2.4 million people are locked up in the United States, and more than 7 million are under correctional control, like probation. The U.S. has just 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. Think about that for a minute. Our population is about 319 million people. China's population is about 1.4 billion people, and we imprison more people than they do. That's crazy. Imprisoning all these people has a big economic impact. Taxpayers pay $80 billion a year to lock up one out of every 99 Americans. In my home state of Minnesota, it costs $36,000 a year to lock up an adult and $75,000 to $100,000 a year to incarcerate a child. While it's expensive for the government, for the over 2.7 million children with a parent in jail, incarceration doesn't just take away someone's freedom. It also takes away their ability to be financially secure. Incarceration eliminates about half the earnings a man would make before the age of 48. Look at it this way. Getting locked up means you lose about $180,000 in income over the course of your career. And that does not include any lost wages during incarceration. High incarceration rates stifle the economy in communities like Ferguson, Missouri, where the site of Michael Brown's shooting took place, where half of the African-American male population is literally missing due to incarceration or death. The same goes with black communities all across the South. There are more missing African-American men nationwide than there are African-American men living in the city of New York, America's largest city. Or just add up, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Detroit, Houston, Washington, DC, and Boston all together, and that's how many African-American men are missing from communities. This keeps African-American families in cycles of poverty that are nearly impossible to escape. To learn more about how over-incarceration hurts the financial livelihood of families, I talked with Michelle Alexander. Now, Michelle Alexander is a civil rights lawyer and a professor of law at Ohio State University. She wrote a groundbreaking, best-selling book, which I strongly recommend, called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. This is what Professor Alexander had to say about the economic impact of incarceration.
1: In today's economy, where there's been deindustrialization and globalization and jobs have been you know, shipped overseas and in places all over this country where work has literally disappeared and there's been such a loss of hope among young people, you know, many... Uh, don't even graduate high school. And our high schools often operate more as warehouses than centers of meaningful uh, you know, learning um, or inspiration. And um, when young black men graduate um, or fail to graduate from high school and don't go on to college or have any other skills, um, the odds that they will do time um, are extraordinarily high. And once they're ushered into the criminal justice system, um, they're they're trapped. They're largely locked out of the mainstream economy, creating a vicious circle that um, keeps not only themselves as individuals trapped, um, but their families and entire yeah. communities as well. By focusing on the number of people who are currently behind bars, we actually grossly understate the magnitude of the crisis that we face. There's 2 million people behind bars, but more than 7 million people who are under correctional control, then tens of millions of people who are saddled with criminal records that will follow them for the rest of their lives and authorize legal discrimination against them and Mm -hmm. employment, housing, access to education, basic public benefits. And so, you know, we're targeting millions of people at young ages for early admission into the criminal justice system and then making it virtually impossible for them to contribute in meaningful ways to our economy and our society, um, treating them as largely disposable. So this is absolutely a loss, um, not just to our economy, um, but to families, and it's had a devastating effect on community life.
0: I asked Professor Alexander if there is any way to confront income inequality in a meaningful way without addressing mass incarceration. This is what
1: she said. There's no way we're going to fix our schools Mm -hmm. and there's no way we're going to be putting people back to work in our communities if we do not deal with a phenomenon of mass incarceration. You know, as long as kids in schools have their parents turning in and out of jails. They're not going to be performing and concentrating uh, the way they ought to be. You know, it's it's trauma that's being inflicted on these young folks. Um, mm-hmm. And to think that, you know, they're going to be thriving in school even though they're still being targeted and harassed by the police, even as their parents are locked out of public housing and they're stuck in a second-class status. The idea that we can fix our schools somehow without dealing with the trauma and the reality of mass incarceration and the wars that are being waged on these communities is is just false. And to imagine that we're gonna have the resources to invest in our schools, as long as we're investing massive resources in our prisons and jails is just folly. And we're not gonna be able to put people back to work and inspire and support entrepreneurship um, if most of the people in these communities um, are ensnared by the criminal justice system or have criminal records um, and have lost valuable years um, sitting in cages. So um, it is essential, I think, that we confront the problem of mass incarceration and build a, a real movement um, to end it. And, you know, I'll have to just add, though, that it isn't enough and it's actually potentially counterproductive for us to just simply slash prison sentences, Mm -hmm. if we don't also invest in these communities um, and provide jobs and retraining um, and, um, you know, educational opportunities and all of that, if, you know, all we do is reduce prison sentences and yet people are coming back into communities still saddled with criminal records, still unable to find work, Um, we will not be solving the problem.
0: Being locked up keeps you out of the workforce, unless of course you're working for 19 cents an hour in prison, but because our society stigmatizes people for having a criminal record, which is one in every four Americans, you continue to be barred from economic prosperity after you've done your time. My good friend of many years, Sarah Walker, who was a leader of the Second Chance Coalition in Minneapolis, explained how hard it is to regain financial security after you have acquired a criminal record. Second Chance is an organization devoted to advocating for fair laws that help people with criminal records contribute to their communities and realize their full potential. Here's what Sarah had to say.
2: There's many barriers. There's both federal barriers. For example, in the entire banking industry, anything to do with finance. You know, they're basically prohibited from working. Anyone with a criminal record is prohibited from working in those areas. Um, In addition, there's lots of other companies, let's say trucking, um, you're not able, which should be a job that doesn't require a huge amount of. Technical skill and would be a good job that pays pretty well, but a lot of trucking industries do not allow people with criminal records to come and work for them. So there's countless barriers to employment opportunities. Um, and then not only that, as our economy has changed and a lot of jobs have moved actually to the suburbs, there's transportation barriers. When you get out of prison, you barely have any money or resources and so you don't have a car and how are you supposed to get out get from let's say you know the east side of St. Paul to a job all the way in Maple Grove when that's the opportunity so you spend another few hours on the bus you have to pay for the bus and then you and then you end up working a low wage job
0: Sarah also discusses how having money can impact your success at reentry
2: regardless of race although The disproportionality was still African-American. If you had means, your parents could go and rent an apartment for you. It's because one of the the biggest challenges are jobs and housing. Or, you know, I saw people whose parents owned businesses and they were able to, you know, get their... Yes, employ you. And so there's lots of those those disadvantages that landed you in prison for the most part. They have accumulated.
0: Hearing from experts and advocates is helpful. But they're not a substitute for hearing from people who have gone through the system themselves. In the course of my many years as a criminal lawyer, I got to know a young lady by the name of Lisa Dixon. Lisa spent four and a half years in prison. And during that time, she was separated from her young son. I asked Lisa about the impact of incarceration on her family.
3: I remember one visit, my son came to visit me. And um, he was, again, he was only six years old. And when it was time to go... Because he thought I was at college. We, we we tried to dress it up like this is not prison, you know. And when it was time to go, he was like, no, Mom, I don't want to leave. I want to stay with you. And so I'm, we're explaining to him, well, you can't stay. A visit is a visit. You know, you'll be to come back. I mean, he just grabbed me, Keith, and he was begging me, telling me, please, Mom, my dad will let you stay with me. I'll be good. I, you don't ever have to worry about me doing nothing bad. Please. Broke my heart. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm supposed to be his protector. I'm supposed to be the one that when I see that he's in danger or that he's hurting, I kiss the boo-boo. I make it better.
0: Lisa also experienced barriers to the economy and to getting fair housing after doing her time.
3: Prison is set up as a business. It is a revolving door now. When you leave, they don't say, uh, uh, take care, good luck, God bless, they say, see you later. When you leave prison... As an ex-convict, no one has to rent to you. No one has to give you a job because you're an ex-convict. It is easier to go back to prison than it is to stay out. No one wanted to rent to me. I mean, every, everywhere, uh, no one wanted to give me a job. They didn't trust me because I had that, that big ex-convict on my back in high school. And um, once the, they started letting people get a tour of the prison, they were like, "Whoa, well, they got it too good. So they started taking more privileges away from us because people in the society wanted us to suffer more. So mm-hmm. that shows mm-hmm. you that it was not about rehabilitation. If it was about rehabilitation, um, some, of the to, some of the tools that you should have been teaching us should have been, making us should have been helping us to be better citizens, more productive citizens for society. But it was not. It was labor for the prison to make money.
0: While prison may mean financial ruin for some, it translates to billions of dollars in profits for others. Every year, private prison corporations make billions of dollars off contracts with the government. As the number of prisoners has exploded, so have the profits of these corporations. To get more information about how these private prisons work, I talked to David Shapiro. As a lawyer for the ACLU and a professor of law at Northwestern University, Professor Shapiro is an expert on the private prison industry here 's what Professor Shapiro had to say about the private prison revenue
4: it's uh, it's yeah, you know if we look at the two top uh, private prison companies alone, uh, CCA and the geo group uh, top in the sense of you know number of prisoners number of revenue, um, they bring in about three billion dollars a year in in revenue um, you know these are these are large uh, highly profitable companies with uh, highly compensated uh, CEOs, um, uh, and because the number of prisons uh, and the number of prisoners has been expanding so uh, dramatically, the uh, the private prison industry has been expanding and 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 growing with it. Um, certainly, the the fact that there is now more momentum to reform sentencing laws to reduce the number of People that we have in, in prison uh, are are a threat to to the growth of the private prison industry. And indeed, in filings that they've submitted to the SEC about risks to their business, they talk about changes in sentencing laws as something that could threaten uh, the mm-hmm. amount of money that they'll make.
0: These businesses are literally treating prisoners like commodities. Their business model is recidivism. If that doesn't offend your sense of justice, wait till you hear this. In the last 10 years. Private prisons have spent $45 billion on lobbying government for harsher sentencing laws and immigration policy that serves their bottom line. I asked Professor Shapiro to elaborate on how lobbying by private prisons impacts their own bottom line.
4: I think uh, I I think certainly some of the growth of 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 private prison can can be explained um in terms in terms of lobbying. I mean, you know, we, we uh, you know, it, it, if we look for example at the largest private prison company in the in the world, Corrections Corporation of America, um which Brings in almost two billion dollars a year in revenue Uh, between 1999 and 2009. They spent about 18 million dollars on on lobbying. Um, You know, during the same time that 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 more and more uh, uh, private prisons are being expanded and 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 built. Um, And and I, you know, it stands to to reason that the that private prisons want to uh, engage in lobbying because they want more uh, people to in, in in their private prisons. The more people who uh, are sent to private prisons, the the more money they're going to make.
0: Sarah Walker from Second Chance also noted the perverse incentives of lobbying for harsher sentencing laws.
2: Corrections officers actually tend to have some of the most powerful unions in the country and um, do a very effective job of lobbying for their own self-interest often. Um, and I think that, I mean, I always use California as an example. You know, the California Corrections Officers Union was the most powerful union in the country for many, many years, and they actually joined forces at times, even with the NRA, and lobbied for the, the laws that we all think, know now to be ineffective and terrible, like three strikes, all the mandatory minimums, and California, those when those laws passed, they became, there was like a wave across the country in which everyone started implementing more policies like that. Increasing drug penalties, um, all of those policies started. It also, you know, they were so powerful that in California, corrections officers are basically viewed as law enforcement. They carry guns in their facilities. They're more or less like a militarized police force. And they had so much power that they were able to sway elections. And so they basically got what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, their powers diminished some, but I always remind people while we have, well, I think that, you know, fundamentally, Um, military, law enforcement, anything to do with public safety is a core function of government. The reality is we need to focus all of our attention in reducing the ways people get into prison. The only thing we can do to solve this prison crisis is to stop putting people in.
0: The 500% increase in the incarceration rates over the last 40 years is not attributed to higher rates of crime. It is the direct result of changes to sentencing laws. You can literally chart the links between how much money private prisons spend on lobbying for harsher sentencing laws and incarceration rates. In other words, it's not an accident that we have 2.4 million people in jail. Private prison corporations and bad criminal justice policy created a system where jail is about profit and control instead of rehabilitation. Some argue that private prisons save money because they operate more efficiently than government operated prisons. This is false. Here's Professor Shapiro.
4: Curbing private prisons are are absolutely a step in in the right uh, direction, um, because be, because of the huge uh, moral implications that we were just discussing of locking people uh, up um, um, as, as as a as a way to make money, uh, because of uh, the the fact that the claims about cost savings, which are one of the big selling points of the private prison industry, uh, are, uh, are, are are dramatically are uh, o- overstated or can be overstated uh and you know and and, and because just of the incentives that these uh, companies have to to cut corners, I think private prisons are are a bad idea
0: and because the incentive is profit, not the safety and rehabilitation of prisoners or the safety of the public, conditions in private prisons are often lacking
4: if you just think about the incentives of a private prison. Company, um, their incentives are to make money and to cut corners uh, where they where they can. Um, and, uh, you know, I have certainly been in um, some terribly operated um, governmental prisons. So it's it, it's by no means the case um, that private prisons have a monopoly on bad conditions, on violations of uh, international standards or or uh, United States constitutional standards. Um, But they don't necessarily have the same incentives that uh, government prisons do to make sure uh, that conditions are safe, that conditions are decent. And all of that can lead to to, uh, violations of both uh, international standards as well as U.S. constitutional standards.
0: And, you know, the problem doesn't stop here. This is not just about people who've been tried and convicted of a crime.
4: It's by no means uh, confined to uh, people who have been convicted of crimes. It includes, uh, uh, there are a large number of, of privatized jails for people who are awaiting uh, a, a trial or awaiting sentencing um, and a, as you say uh, the private prison industry has been uh, particularly effective in penetrating the immigration detention market if we want to call it that. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers offhand, but I, I believe it is about 50% of uh, immigration detainees who are housed in some type of uh, federal private facility at any given time.
0: Local jails are filled with people who may be innocent because they haven't had their day in court yet, but can't afford their bail. Here's Sarah Walker.
2: I think we should do away with the bail process. I think it is so disparate in its treatment. So the first thing that happens is, let's say you have, you have to remember that your bail hearing comes up before you've actually been convicted. Mm -hmm. So if you go into a jail on any given day, the people who are sitting there waiting for their charges or they're people without means. Their families can't come up with the money and they're unable to pay for it. So if you're a wealthy person from an upper middle class family Um, you're going to be able you're going to pay that bail and you can be out and at your job in the next day but so let's say you're a working class person and you work a you know shift job you miss your you miss a shift or two you're not going to have that job so the people who are already struggling most to make ends meet are going to have a harder time and they're going to end up in jail longer and if you think about it someone can sit in jail then for six months a year if you're able to get out and go on about your life because you can post bail you're less likely to make a plea bargain and you're also going to be in a better position to consult with people, get an attorney, and you're most likely going to have a private attorney.
0: Bail has essentially transformed into a system of imprisoning the poor. Private prisons also operate immigration detention facilities that are filled with people who have fled dangerous conditions in their home country and are waiting for an immigration hearing. Private prisons even manage to lobby for a law that requires, requires, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol to fill at least 34,000 beds in detention facilities. That is like telling the local police department how many people it has to keep in jail every night. This all helps the bottom line of the private prison corporations that see locking up human beings as a way to make money, but it devastates the families that we've heard about in the beginning. When I asked Professor Shapiro about the economic impact of incarceration on individuals and families, he echoed Michelle Alexander.
4: Absolutely bleak. I mean, going to prison for any amount of time um, can really ruin your life. Um, and it not not just ruin your life during the time that you're incarcerated, um, but you lose your job um, without... Exception and made and uh, you your family loses uh, any support that uh, you've been able to provide to them as as a result of uh, your your job. I mean breadwinners really get shipped off to prison a lot of the time and families suffer as as a result. Um, and then when you get out of Prison, um, you're likely uh, penniless because you haven't been able to earn any income while you're in prison. Uh, and your prospects of landing a, a decent job are, are extremely limited because of uh, the, the reluctance of many people to, to hire anyone who has a, a criminal record. I mean, really, the effect of, of going into in prison is having your economic prospects um, locked in at the bottom, and your family suffers along with that.
0: The private prison industry creates a morally bankrupt cycle that builds the bank accounts of private prisons and keeps millions of Americans in jail. Incarceration should be about rehabilitation, and incarceration should be about public safety, not profitability. There are many legislators on Capitol Hill that understand the urgent need for reform. Last month, Senator Bernie Sanders and I introduced a bill that would end private prisons and there are dozens of criminal justice reforms that have bipartisan support. But we need your help in pushing politicians to prioritize these reforms. We also owe it to millions of Americans all over the United States, people who may have never touched the criminal justice system to make sure that their tax dollar for public safety goes to that purpose, not for the profitability of some private corporation. Until next time, this has been Keith Ellison for We The Podcast. I don't do these podcasts by myself. This week's podcast was written and directed by Lindsay Herbal and produced by Zach Fried and Brett Morrow. Thank you, guys. Hey, check out We The Podcast, everybody. Subscribe.
3: Wake up, everybody. No more sleeping in bed. No more back-thinking
0: time for thinking.
3: Changed so very
0: much for what it used to be. There's so much hatred,
3: more and poverty. Oh, 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 oh wake up all just talk to teacher to wait. Maybe then they will listen to what you have to say. Up, and the world is in their hands when you teach the children to jump the bell. Very-